Hi, Tony Hines here. You're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast. This is the News Roundup. All things impacting global supply chains this week. Well, the UK economy shrunk by 0.1% after the coronation in May. That's according to the Office of National Statistics. The downturn is apparently less than expected, but it comes after a 0.2% growth in April. The contraction in May was driven by the extra bank holiday weekend for the coronation of King Charles, and sectors such as construction and finance lost a working day. The Office for National Statistics Director Darren Morgan said GDP fell slightly as manufacturing energy generation and construction all fell back, with some industries impacted by one fewer working day. Pubs and bars saw sales fall after the strong April figures. And services were flat overall, with health recovering with less impact from strikes than in the previous month. The IT sector also had a strong month. Production output also fell by 0.6% in May, after a fall of 0.2% in April. And the service sector, as I said, was flat after its growth in the previous month in April of 0.3%. Monthly GDP is 0.2% above its pre-COVID level from February 2020. The pound was lifted to a 15-month high against the dollar yesterday, and sterling has risen for the sixth session in a row as traders increased bets that the US Federal Reserve will soon start cutting interest rates because inflation is falling back, whereas in the UK, inflation remains high. And there are various strikes happening at the moment in the public sector as workers demand pay rises. Double-digit pay rises they want in a lot of cases, for example, the doctors. There's a fresh wave of uh, strikes for the rail and maritime transport workers and 20,000 workers will be on strike at 14 rail firms on three separate days with an ongoing pay dispute. The British Medical Association says that yesterday's 6% offer to junior doctors doesn't go far enough. And another piece of news is that there's a big rise in loan defaults since 2009. 31% of lenders reported an increase in defaults in the three months to June, compared with 14% in the first quarter of the year. Mortgage interest rates have jumped in recent months to quite large figures. Mortgages are now above 6%, and that's putting a lot of pressure on consumers. It's taking away disposable income, and it's likely that house prices will dip as a consequence. Despite all the rhetoric of hitting net zero by 2050, the UK is still failing in its attempts to diversify energy supplies. The Office of Budget Responsibility warned this week that supplies to gas-fired electricity remain, which leaves the nation vulnerable to price shocks. Much more needs to be done if this is to be avoided. It's likely to cost about £327 billion to reach net zero by 2050, but the government has so far only committed £22 billion. So this energy transition is going to be the big thing for the next few years, but it doesn't look like much is being done. Lots of rhetoric, but not much action. 
Back in the 1990s, of course, we did reduce CO2 emissions more than most other G7 countries. And that was because the United Kingdom switched from coal to gas. Gas as a source of energy went up by 24% in 1990 and then to 40% by 2022. The British economy needs much more investment in renewable energy sources if it's to gain security over its energy and reach the net zero targets. Food price inflation is still on the increase despite talk about it coming down and the Institute of Grocery Distribution expects food inflation to still be around 9% in December. Food inflation, of course, peaked around March this year, but it was still 18.3% in May, according to the ONS data. According to Retail Week, a recent research study shows that 48% of consumers are now more likely to send items back, and this is a significant increase on the numbers before the cost of living crisis. The key findings from this piece of research notes that 60% of consumers have indulged in retail therapy for light relief from the doom and gloom of all the financial pressure, but that when they realise that they've made a purchase to satisfy the zest for something a bit brighter, and they realise they can't afford that purchase, they send it back. Less than half, 47% of shoppers, kept the items. 63% of the retailers saw an increase in what they call disingenuous returns, while 15% of shoppers suffering from shopping guilt said they returned all purchases that were unused or unworn. And the other trend, of course, is that people are trading down. They're buying cheaper goods and moving away from the traditional brands that they might have purchased previously. So all in all, this is a pretty interesting piece of research with returns on the rise. It's been a big problem for retailers, of course, how to deal with these reverse logistics that are involved in taking goods back and repurposing them. And of course, you see many items which are up for sale as what they call B-stock items. And those B-stock items are usually because someone's returned an item that they decided they didn't want for whatever reason. Returns cost about 6% of the recommended retail price on all sales, according to Retail Voice. Some of the figures I've seen are much higher than that. It seems that regret, of course, is a big driver of uh, returns now, though. This guilt complex. On the one hand, customers want to buy something to feel good, and then when they realise what the cost is, they want to send it back. Morrison's is to close its Bradford packaging plant, and that puts 450 jobs at risk. The supermarket chain said it's going to move the operation from Yorkshire to a plant in Northamptonshire and a distribution centre in Wakefield. Well, it probably hasn't escaped you that it's Amazon Prime time. Amazon has seen significant growth over the past few years with its Amazon Prime Days. Back in 2021, Amazon Prime Day sales reached 11.79 billion US dollars. And that was a growth of around 185.47% compared to 2018 numbers. In 2023, US shoppers 
spent $12.7 billion online during the 48-hour Prime Day, and that's up 6.1% on just a year ago. The Amazon Prime Day in 2023 was its biggest two-day sale event in the company's history. Over the two-day period, on the 11th and 12th of July, Prime members around the world purchased more than 375 million items, and they collectively saved $2.5 billion, according to Amazon. Saved is always a strange figure, isn't it? Because if you look at prices on Amazon, they're up and down by the minute. So what you actually save, you're never quite sure. But that's the figure that Amazon give. The first day of the 48-hour shopping bonanza was actually the biggest sales day in the company's history, according to Amazon. Many of the independent sellers, of course, benefit from this sale period. Amazon offered more deals on small business products than ever before this year. And that significantly helps those businesses to boost their sales figures in what might otherwise be a flat period. Well, the United Parcel Services strike could be one of the costliest in history. It could cost the company $7 billion for the 10-day stoppages, according to a leading think tank, Anderson Economic Group. According to them, UPS customer loss could cost $4 billion and the loss of direct wages of more than $1 billion. A previous strike in 1997 that lasted for 15 days disrupted supplies of goods and it cost the parcel company $850 million US dollars and sent some customers to their rivals, such as FedEx. There are about 340,000 unionised workers, and they handle a quarter of the US parcel deliveries, operating in almost every city and town in the nation. And this strike could be really damaging. It could also have a damaging impact on inflation. UPS is urging the Teamster negotiators to come back to the bargaining table. But the union officials have said that UPS needs to sweeten up the deal before they return. Maersk is a leading integrator of logistics and they're dedicated to simplifying and connecting customer supply chains. And this week they've opened their latest UK warehouse in the East Midlands. It's a state-of-the-art robotic shuttle-put wall system from a US-based company, Berkshire Grey, and it'll be automated and enhance and accelerate the warehouse operations. It's a 685,000 square foot facility, and the system is AI-enabled. It can sort three times faster than conventional manual systems, and it can improve upstream batch inventory picking by up to 33%, and handle 100% of the typical of the stock-keeping unit assortments, order profiles, and packages, and this will increase the competitiveness of Maersk's fulfilment service. They claim it will make it resilient and flexible, improving resilience and flexibility in their customers' supply chains. The warehouse is part of Segro Logistics Park, East Midlands Gateway, and it goes into operation in October 2023. Maersk say they have integrated logistics solutions in 473 warehouses with a total capacity of 80 million square feet across all the continents. Well, Thames water is still in the news for all the wrong reasons, polluting the rivers and, of course, this massive debt mountain that they've built up over the past few years. It was Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister who decided to privatise the 
Water Utilities in the UK back in 1989. And ostensibly, it was about competition. But competition from who or between what is the question. Most of these water utilities throughout the world are actually in public ownership. But the UK, in its wisdom, decided to make them private companies and to pay shareholder dividends. And this is the start of the problem. And of course, what happened next is that the regulator didn't really regulate because they set targets and parameters for operation. And one of those encouraged the water companies to take debt. And I'll explain why in just a moment. Water companies, of course, are monopolies. So if you privatise them, which happened under the Thatcher government, you're simply passing a public-owned monopoly to a private-owned company. And those private-owned companies need to pay shareholder dividends. And the idea was that by privatisation in the sector, it would encourage investment in water utilities. And that would take away the cost from government. So government not only lost the income from the water companies, but it hoped to reduce its cost of operating those water companies. But did it work? Well, let's explore further. Well, the water regulator was set up to set the frameworks and the rules by which the sector would operate. And one of the things they had to do was to encourage investment in the sector. And to encourage that investment, they encouraged the water companies to take on debt as part of the funding for those investments. And that was the start of the problem. There was an article in the Guardian newspaper back in December 2022 which said that customers pay 20% of their bill to service the debt of these water companies who by now, of course, had racked up total debts between them of £54 billion. Off what, which is the regulator for the water companies in the UK, said it was up to the water companies to manage their debt situation and not the regulator. But does the regulator sit by and watch, forgive the pun, water companies pour money down the drain? So now the water companies not only had £66 billion of dividends to pay out to shareholders for investment in those companies, but they also were racking up a debt mountain to fund the rest of their investment. The water companies in the UK are 70% owned by international investment companies. So they must think it's worthwhile holding those shares in those companies because they're getting a dividend, which over the years has not been insubstantial. But there's something more going on because it was revealed in the Guardian article that hardly any investment was made by these private investors. So they haven't put much money into these companies at all. And most of the activity of water companies is funded by the customer. It's the customer who pays the bills. And of course, if water companies fail, which could be the case with Thames Water, according to press reports, then it will be customers and, of course, the taxpayer who will have to foot the bill. So there's a strong case here for making these now private assets of the water company, public assets, once more. And water should be a public asset. It's the right to life. Without water, no one can live. And we need clean water 
clean rivers and pollution needs to be curbed. But it will cost money. But it should be a public utility, shouldn't it? It is most everywhere else in the world. And it's time, probably, for a rethink on the water industry and water supply in the United Kingdom. Water, of course, is a public health issue. And it's a survival and security issue. So is it time to make those water companies a publicly owned asset again? Changing Well, that's it for this week. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. And I'll see you next time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.